0: You are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I'm Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Thieu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders, such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel, to name a few. You can expect Deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Be thankful now for having arrived, for the sense of having drunk from a well, for remembering the long drought that preceded your arrival and the years walking in a desert landscape of surfaces looking for a spring hidden from you so long that even wanting to find it now had gone from your mind. Until you only remembered the hard pilgrimage that brought you here, the thirst that caught in your throat, the taste of a world just missed and the dry throat that came from a love that you remembered but had never fully wanted for yourself. Until finally, after years making the long trek to get here, it was as if your whole achievement had become nothing but thirst itself. But the miracle had come simply from allowing yourself to know that you had found it, that this time someone walking out into the clear air from far inside you had decided not to walk past it anymore. The miracle had come at the roadside in the kneeling to drink and the prayer you said and the tears you shed and the memories you held and the realization That in this silence you no longer had to keep your eyes and ears averted from the places that you could save. That you had been given the strength to let go of the thirsty, dust-laden pilgrim self that brought you here, walking with her bent back, her bowed head, and her careful explanations. No, The miracle had already happened when you stood up, shook off the dust and walked along the road from the well out of the desert toward the mountain, as if already home again, as if you deserved what you loved all along, as if just remembering the taste of that clear cool spring could lift you up your face, and set you free. You were listening to The Well by David White. And now we move to this week's podcast of AI Ready Healthcare, where we talked with Professor Yulia Schnabel about the first Mikhai in Africa, as well as her journey from the early days of medical image registration to the more recent work on quality analysis of medical images and the promise of AI in population imaging. Welcome to the third season of our podcast, AI Ready Healthcare. We are recording on a cold November morning in Germany, but I'm Anirvan and together with my co-host Henry we would really like to warmly welcome our guest, Professor Julia Schnabel. Professor Schnabel is Beckman Distinguished Professor for Computational Imaging and AI in TUDE, Munich. Um, she has a joint appointment with Helmholtz Center Munich. And Professor Schnabel, among many other things, is a fellow of IEEE and Mikai. So Giving all the titles would probably take half of the episodes, so I don't go there. But one thing I should mention, apart from her research activities, she is also very involved in making the Mikai Society into more of, in terms of the organizational aspects. And she is also very active in social media. So you can follow her in Twitter and LinkedIn to see more of what research she is doing, what sort of new things she is organizing. And for the sake of simplicity, we will call her Julia or Yulia for the rest of the episode. So yeah, welcome to our
1: podcast.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much, Anya, Ben, and Henry for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here.
1: Good morning, Yulia. It's also a great pleasure for me to uh, have you here today. And uh, good morning to our listeners. So the very first question which I would like to ask you, which uh, is a question that is reoccurring, that we have in Every episode is about your becoming as a researcher and your journey through research. So, yeah, how did, how did that go?
2: <laughs> um, well, how much time have you got? <laughs> I still, I'm still becoming, I should say. I think it's, it's, it's a journey. It's not a goal. I have got interested in medical imaging in my master's studies in Berlin at the TU Berlin where actually I was exposed to some seminar series run by Heinz Lemke, who some of you might know, he's an editor of IJ Cars and he's running... And, and he was the only person in, in the whole department who was interested in biomedical applications. So this was my first exposure and I wrote my master thesis in, in that field already And then you start kind of drifting because I thought well it's that's you know I want to find out more I want to learn more I'm always keen to you know discover new ideas and and go with the flow and uh, so I went to London to do a PhD and again I was quite lucky I had not only a fantastic supervisor Simon Arridge, he was in his niche pre- project. He's actually a reconstruction person. He did medical image computing. And so I I sort of worked with him. We did scale space stuff together, which was really popular in the 1990s. And because the way they set up PhDs in the UK is you have to have uh, examiners to also check you during your thesis already, like a thesis committee. And uh, I happen to have Andrew Chokopropak and Dave Hawks, and they're really very, uh, very much in the IPMI community at that time. And through some detours, my first postdoc, Max Viergever's Lab in, in Utrecht, where I sort of met some really great people. And they all, you know, they were PhD students and postdocs then, and then all, all professors all over the Netherlands and, and beyond. But I returned to the UK to work with Dave Hawkes, which was brilliant. And this is when I got into image registration, which kind of gave me the most solid foundation. And then we all moved to UCL again. So I did a full circle there. Founded the Center for Medical Image Computing or CMIC at the time. And then I started becoming an academic. That's when you kind of scale down on your own research, but you sort of grow new researchers. So you actually take a bit of a step back. But uh, I think I, I enjoy that. I think even more because all of a sudden you don't do just one research project. You look after many research projects. And it's, it's always a pleasure being part of
0: other people's journey then as well. Wonderful. So I guess sort of you had, I don't know, probably a two decade or more span of doing Mikai research. And that's really wonderful. And I guess you spent time in Germany or, yeah, country, and then you moved to UK, you moved to Netherlands and back to UK for, I don't know, again, a decade or two, and then you are coming back to uh, Munich. So London, Munich, both are sort of research hubs. So I guess, how do you see the similarities and differences between these two?
2: <laughs> this, this is su- such an interesting uh, transition, which I've been doing. And yes, it has been decades, it's, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. I, I was actually at the first Mikai already, playing football in front of the auditorium with uh, Vero Nissen and all these great people. It's um, So yeah, I was one of the first people there. Yeah, the difference between especially the UK and Germany is quite prominent. I see many similarities as well, of course. Uh, The UK... Things are slightly, you know, less bureaucratic. (laughs) So funding, you know, applying for funding is a bit more straightforward. There was a huge focus on medical imaging in the funders. So um, like the engineering and physical sciences, research council, EPSRC have a huge healthcare technologies portfolio and medical imaging is the biggest part of that. And I was lucky enough to be either at UCL or King's or later Oxford, um, where I had my first academic post that medical imaging was really so, you know, written in capital letters. I was there at the right place at the right time, I should say. So it's not, you know, who you are, but who you're with as well, right? And the medical imaging community in, in the UK is very tight knit. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody has worked with somebody or has been somebody's advisor or colleague at some point in their lives. Moving to Germany, that was, you know, (laughs) lots of different reasons, some personal, some political, some just sheer coincidence. It is different. It's a bit more, um, slightly more rigid frameworks, which is not bad. It actually allows less, maybe, for for opportunity for lobbying and, and fraternization and all these things. So it's a bit more strict. But it's also for me almost more foreign than England was. So I've been mean, filling out a German grant proposal form. Is, I read I read a German to German translator there. It's, and, and you must be suffering hugely there. I really And you have these. You work still with international colleagues, but then all of a sudden everybody starts speaking German, and then I feel more like one of some of my best colleagues here. I say, well, how do you cope? I mean, it's, they say as yeah, they speak German, but got to that level, of course, and. I had to give a panel discussion in German the other day to celebrate the 60 years of the Helmholtz Center Munich and I had to practice my German before. It's <laughs> because I struggle for words sometimes, and you know, it's it's a different level. So there are lots of differences here. Um, I do hugely enjoy it though because um, the funding situation in in Germany actually they, they just approved their new research budget here, and they they have a really it's, it looks good for us here. I think they the new government is is putting money in in research and rightly so. Where it suffers, I think, is uh, in digital frameworks and infrastructure. That's I uh, just, it's funny because this is a podcast. I just see Bad nodding the whole time. <laughs> I wish that could be the podcast as well. But, you know, I, I hadn't come across fax machines in a long time in the UK. And all of a sudden you have to send people things by fax. It's its quite, you feel a bit like in a time warp. I think people are waking up to it. They're just lagging a little bit behind. But yeah, it's really interesting because now I'm at a, both at the Technical University of, of Munich. So it's a fantastic computer science program um, where I'm based. But also the School of Medicine is really good. So it has really, for me, the two main ingredients which I need. And then Hamel Center Munich, which is actually my main base, I can now build up this new institute for machine learning and biomedical imaging. So... And Helmholtz Association, people might not know outside of outside of Germany, and even inside of Germany, they might not know it. It's the largest research organization in Germany, if not in Europe, actually. It is, uh, employs like, I think, 30,000 people. So it's massive. It's bigger than Max Planck or Fraunhofer or any other of those that you might have heard of. And the German Cancer Center is part of it, for example. But Helmholtz Munich is really focusing on health and environment, which I think is a really lovely combination as well, because as we now see with both the pandemic and climate crisis, these are the two main issues that will keep us busy and and how they're interlinked. So I think there's lots of opportunity for me here to link with people working on asthma or other things which are related to pollution. So um, that I haven't seen to that scale in the UK yet.
1: Wonderful. Maybe taking the crystal ball and looking into the future of your journey as a researcher. I think one, one important stage will be Mikai in the year 2024, for which you will be uh, the general chair, which will take place in an African country in Morocco for the very first time. So this is something that's yeah really interesting uh, to look at as a as a development. And yeah, uh, we we are wondering how excited you are as a general chair and what you are uh, exactly looking forward to and your expectations and hopes for this very special occasion. So
2: I'm obviously I'm hugely excited. I'm not the general chair, Karim lekadiev from Barcelona is the general chair. I'm his kind of side buddy, his his cheerleader in that in that journey. And for him, it's it's been really personal um, drive to do this uh, with with, he's of North African descent and his family for him bringing Mikai to Africa was always his dream and he called me in the middle of the pandemic to discuss this and he just he talked me through it and I was just swept off my feet because he had thought about so many things which we have been neglecting in Mikai so Mikai of course it started in Boston and went to Cambridge UK and it did all the big city tours. We've been to New York and we've been to Tokyo and, and Beijing and, you know, all fantastic places. And, of course, Granada, which is the one I, I was, you know, doing my first slightly more major role as program chair. But taking it to Africa took, took a huge, um, but it didn't take that much persuasion to the board, I must say, when we did our bid because everybody was actually thinking the time is right. It was really, I think, again, it was the opportune moment And because what we did and what Karim mainly did was assemble really a fantastic team, a team of um, just the right people. We reached out to several groups in in Africa from all the way, from Cape Town all the way up to Tunisia and Morocco and uh, Kenya and God knows where, Nigeria as well. So we really looked for, to involve uh, the, the African research elite as well. And what I felt was the most important thing is not, the actual conference in the end, the conference will be amazing, of course, and I hope everybody will, will come. It's it's it, it will be really, really good. But it's the journey, again, leading to it, because what we do as well is, again, working with the right people who work with Islam Rehkik, who was the Women in Mika president until recently. But she just worked on with the Shadi al bokini here at, at uh, TUM and Helmholtz Munich as well and with me is to build up a new network called RISE. And I completely forgot what it stands for. I have to really deeply apologize. But basically it's trying to reach out to diverse groups in our community and empower them and bring them closer into MICAI and and have them submit papers and thrive. And combining these things, bringing MICAI to Africa, reaching out to African researchers and you know, using Rise to develop this network before we even start the conference. This will be the most amazing part of 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 it, and it's it's that journey. Now, in the run up to to MICA 24, we will run a lot of tutorials, engagement workshops. We're thinking. We just yesterday, we now have already started our weekly preparation meetings. Just yesterday, we discussed um, maybe running a summer school in Marrakech and uh, how we can do a local outreach program there to schoolgirls, to also bring in women at the right moment in their career stage so that we actually don't lose them later on. And that will be the real value, I think. You can think of also of the legacy that the conference brings. So once the conference has taken place, hopefully other things will snowball off it as well. I wouldn't compare, wouldn't wish to compare Mika with the Olympic Games, but the one thing that Olympic Games kind of do. The only legacy, I think, is that they improve public transport in the place where they take place, which is good, actually, is something. But if mika could do something like this, that we think about creating data repositories, giving GPU access, increasing on the mentorship program, inviting African researchers to European, North American, or Asian labs, this will be amazing. This is really how we actually foster and nurture the next generation of researchers in that field. And I'm, I'm really, really passionate about that. I just really hope that we managed to, to get it done because we're all really busy people. It's really hard even to find that one hour slot uh, per week for all of us. But I always get, get, get out of those meetings really inspired because people have been bringing so many, so many different ideas. And we just, even if we do just, you know, 1% of these many ideas, which we're currently generating, I think that we've done something really great.
0: That's wonderful. So I guess you already mentioned uh, both, I I guess, the the, the amount of work that you have to do and probably you have to start three years before instead of the year before to organize such a conference in a not so traditional Mikai venue. But at the same time, it has the potential of adding a lot of value to the uh, community, to the continent than uh, somewhere where Mikai research is already established. So I guess one of the things that I heard from the Twitter chatters was there was a little bit of a concern about uh, Morocco as a venue for the LGBTQ plus community. Do you have some, mm-hmm. I, I would say, thoughts in mind of how you want to make sure that those researchers can actually attend Mikai?
2: Yes, that's a valid concern. I
0: mean, to be fair, we've hosted MECA
2: in many places which have maybe some questionable human rights record. I mean, people might not be aware of that. We are traveling quite often to countries which have the death penalty or where you can't be a political dissident or other things, right? It's, you know, not naming names, but... (laughs) um, we have to be always be aware that if we travel to a country that we have to abide by the rules during that time of our stay to that country. It's, it's a bit of a mark of respect as a guest in a country. So you actually have to know how to dress and what to do and what not to do. And basically, always when I travel, I've been traveling to Morocco before. And I've been to Egypt and, and other places. I always, you know, I get a really good handbook, like a travel guide, like the rough guide, which really tells you the things you should be aware of and, you know, a bit like personal safety um, uh, rules. And I think that you have to do that anywhere you go. I mean, if I travel to a really large North American town, I'm worried about gun crime in that area. Where I'm. So it's, there are different dangers at different places. What we want to do is, is first of all, we've got Decon, which is a Turkish company who will look after us, and they are kind of aware of of these things as well. From so, so we'll work with them to establish maybe some kind of like a safety, safety I don't know procedure or something. So just people are, know what to do. Uh, we'll work with local organizers in in Marrakech, women in particular, who will help um, participants who will be there who will be like a local contact person um, so we will try to put in all these safety nets a lot of things are just common sense to be honest it's i think we, we just have to um yeah <laughs> abide by rules even if we might not agree with them right and it's it's just that i think when you're in rome you do as the romans do right it's 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 that saying so that that's one thing the other thing however if people are really concerned and i would understand that it's uh, you know you if you think you might be endangering yourself we we want to really make Mikai 24 hybrid conference pandemic or not because i think it's really important if you're really serious about lowering um, barriers to attend a conference and we're not only talking about personal aspects gender diversity sexual preferences and all these things we're also talking about poverty so people do not do not, do not have financial support people with caring responsibilities who can't travel, people with maybe severe disabilities who can't easily travel to a foreign country where they're not sure whether they get the local support. If you're really serious about that, then you have to offer a, a part virtual format as well. So I, I really hope that by that time, and I'm working really hard in the MECA board, believe me, that we're really not just saying, well, we don't know whether we do be virtual or whatever in the next few years I mean pandemic or not I mean this pandemic might still trigger on anyway I think it's it's our obligation in the maker society to provide conference formats which just allows everybody to participate from their own home office as we are probably all sitting in now um, to really traveling out to maybe slightly more adventurous places than some people are comfortable with other than that, I should point out, Morocco is a really, really safe country. It has a lower crime rate than Canada or North America and most European countries. It's actually, if you look at the crime rate, it, it is really, really low. So the main thing to be aware of is like in very busy marketplaces and things that, you know, you might get a bit, <laughs> you know, a bit, um, get into like slightly crowded areas. And that, that's the only problem. I Actually, I personally felt quite safe in, in Morocco, um, but everybody is a bit different.
1: It's, it's a very nice, very nice initiative, and I think it will be highly appreciated that you are doing everything to keep everyone comfortable and, and safe during the conference. Maybe moving uh, towards the more technical topics today. I would like to ask you about your main research interests and mainly about image registration in combination with uh, quality assurance. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on those topics and especially on the clinical motivation behind both of them?
2: So, yeah, I've I've come from image registration when it was hugely popular. I remember... Mikai in Nagoya, where you had the doodle of uh, the wordle, sorry, the wordle of, of all the conference titles. And I think segmentation was the biggest one and registration was the next biggest one. And a couple of years later in Granada, that was kind of when the deep learning curve hit us. All of a sudden, it was deep learning brain segmentation. Were I think the biggest. I think you could even make a sentence um, out of the the, the word there. So we had this complete seismic shift, and and I we had what I, I called once the winter of registration because people stopped working on it for a while. Not because it was solved. Also, segmentation isn't solved, but uh, segmentation was just kind of a bit more straightforward to approach with deep learning because you can use annotations quite easily. And registration doesn't have that. With registration, you don't know, what's, you know what the deformation or translation of any individual pixel is. So we couldn't do supervised approaches very easily or we had to do some simulations. And so people stopped, you know, stopped working on it for a while. But I think it was just put on ice. I see now so many papers with registration again, which is lovely. But for me, it was not about registration so much. It was about motion. And motion, I think, is such an exciting thing because everything in our body moves the whole time. Even our brain is pulsating, right? We've got swallowing motion. We've got cardiac motion. We've got breathing motion. We've got peristalsis. Our limbs are moving differently to the rest of our trunk. I mean, there's so many different motion challenges, and it's not nice and smooth and continuous, It's sometimes quite abrupt and sliding and you've got compression of the the lungs and then you've got all of a sudden volume loss because air is being pushed out. So all these nice volume preservation techniques then start failing as well. So I always like this interaction of the different things, the physical forces, the, the physiology, which is there, the tissue constraints and all these things trying to make sense of it, and not just for an individual patient, but for, you know, a larger group of patients, I always thought was, that was exciting because you've got also the interperson variability, not in t- only in terms of their motion, but also their anatomy and generally their physiology. So we got into image reconstruction at some point, which I thought was interesting because you have then motion, not just between scans, which you would solve with registration, but motion within a scan. So you get these motion blurs within images. And, you know, one of your earlier podcasts was with my former postdoc with with co uh, with whom I worked on this problem. And so we, you, you listeners might have heard about this, but I thought it was such a nice idea to think about where does motion actually originate? And it's not just that the patient is moving or uh, fortunately breathing, right? Um, but it's also there, there are things which are related to the image acquisition. So you have to actually put your motion solution right at the beginning of the imaging pipeline. You have to really think what is the reason that there is, for example, a temporal motion blur. In that case, it was ECG mistriggering of the heart. So, And, and you can actually understand what's happening there with ECG mistriggering is then the lines of case space across the cardiac cycle, which are acquired already at different some you know, over several breathholds, um, are then being swapped. So this is something we can then train neural networks and in a supervised fashion and uh, reduce that, that motion blur. So we actually can, in, in that case, Ilkai transformed this fully sampled but uh, wrongly sampled case space into an undersampling problem by just identifying which lines of case space are corrupt. Of course, the next step would be to reshuffle the whole cardiac sequence and put the case space lines at the right place in time. But sometimes you may not have acquired them at all because of that severe mistriggering. So that, I thought, was a really nice way of moving a bit further upstream in our, our pipeline. And MICA, for example, is more an image computing conference. But all of a sudden, I was talking more with people who go to imaging conferences like ISMIM and, and working with people from medical physics. And that that actually, for me, was, was also an eye open. even though we should all be working with clinicians anyway, but working with the people who actually... Writing the imaging protocols, even building the scanners is equally important because we have to actually cover the whole pipeline from acquisition to to interpretation. And machine learning, deep learning in particular, lends really itself to bridge across these things because you can solve several of these problems at the same time. You can build in your reconstruction uh, motion reconstruction method also some segmentation or classification task and then all these tasks all of a sudden start maybe not always helping each other but influencing each other and it's really interesting to see what the network is then trying to achieve how it does that is still you know the math behind that is still something we need to tease out a bit more but i think we're, we're getting a bit of a well we're having a closer look really of what's what's going on behind the scenes um, and not just work on on reconstructed images anymore but but really think about what's in the raw what's in the sinogram space what's in the case space um can we do something with the rf signal and ultrasound before we you know do the b mode envelope you know all these things are really really nice and 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 it's emerging at mica i see now more and more reconstruction papers which is lovely and so other people are seeing that as well and then some imaging modalities I never thought I would have worked on, like ultrasound, because I always said, oh my God, this looks terrible. <laughs> this is just noise. This is the most fantastic imaging technique to work in machine learning because you get so many data of just one single patient. You can even start thinking about training just on one single patient rather than across different patients. And it's, it's a real-time image acquisition method. And you can almost in real time, you know, maybe not quite as high as the frame rate, and start interpreting the images as they come in, which is really, really nice.
0: It's actually quite, it's really quite cool. Wonderful. So I guess you touched way too many topics because the question was so open-ended. I guess it was more like summarize all you did for the last two decades in two minutes. So I I, guess, yeah, of course, first of all, even the Ilkay visited, and we talked about some of the works that you were doing with him back in our first season. It was really a wonderful reminder to all of our listeners, the sort of research that you have been doing. And in particular, you are talking about cardiac Cine AMR for all the quality assurance reconstruction mm-hmm. work. I don't know how many of our listeners know about cardiac Cine AMR, but it's a very finicky way of really i i don't know getting the images in it's it like when yulia is talking about breath hold that means you can't really get all the exposures right in one snapshot so you do across and then those really really sick patients are told to hold their breath because otherwise the images won't be looking good. So it's a, it's like once you really think about how you are getting the images, that really helps you to expand where you can really bring a lot of benefit with deep learning. So it's not just about images are all pixels, cats versus dogs, right? So it's much more than that. But I was also thinking when you are talking about this, uh, Yulia, is that one of the main problem of, Deep learning is this domain adaptation problem, right? So whenever things are look slightly different, deep learning fails in weird ways. So for your work on reconstruction and using deep learning for reconstruction, are you trying to even bring reconstruction so that you have a sort of standardized looking images so that the deep learning post processing even becomes easier? So several questions
2: rolled into one, and. Um... So, what we work on is really, I mean, we also work on our local patient data, of course, when this is when our methods start to break. <laughs> because we, we normally train on really nice, very well curated databases as afforded by UK Biobank, which is just one homogenous scanner manufacturer, scanning formats, scanning protocols. And of course, the 100,000 volunteers, um, UK Biobank from a certain age group, at least I think they're between 40 and 70, also broad range. But the majority of them will not have severe health problems because you're less likely to volunteer if you have severe health problems. It's not completely unlikely. Some people have developed extra interest in that because of that and are willing to kind of donate their data. For this good cause, that more research can be carried out to help them and, and others. So it's, but it, yeah, we, we start introducing a bias in our algorithms, but just not, mainly not focusing on the domain. So the, the images look quite similar in terms of their quality. And then, of course, in our hospital, we've got a whole suite of, of scanners that, that was mainly done at King's that work. Um, the King's College London, where we have, I think we've got, we've got now everything from ultra low field to ultra high fields at King's. We've got the whole, the whole family now, uh, but also like from individual, from different manufacturers, we've got 1.5 T and 3 T scanners. So different field strengths, and then you get different bias fields and different signal to noise ratio and all these other things. And then getting your methods, which you've trained on this vanilla database, to work on, on something which, you know, looks like a normal hospital setting. My patients can't hold their breath consistently over a longer scan period. So each breath hold, the heart might be at a slightly different location even. So you get these almost staircase effects if you look at the, the 2D slices, which make up the 3D stack that might be shifted towards each other. So you might get all these, these other problems as well. That, that requires some effort. So what we've done recently at Mecca, we had uh, a couple of papers on that and some of the workshops as well, where we looked at the, the problems of the domain shift. So we actually started looking at, because diff- we have to think about domains in different ways. We have to think about the scanner domain or the hospital where it was acquired, or we have to think about the, so the scanner domain could be also manufacturer and field strength, so it's already four variables you have to worry about then. But then you also have to think about what diseases do, do the patients have. You've got like a disease domain almost. You've got healthy volunteers or people who have a cardiac scan, but everything was fine. And you've got, you've got patients which with, uh, I don't know, now these days, myocarditis or other things. And then you have to kind of think about how, how do you deal with that? Will your algorithm work on some and not the others? For example, segmenting the right ventricle is always difficult. It's just really individual, I think. It's just a, just a harder structure, but there's a really recently developed interest in, in the function and shape of the right ventricle. So if you want to do a standardized reconstruction, it might not even be the answer. <laughs> you might want to build into your reconstruction something clever, which at the same time already analyzes what the problem is so you can think about because if you just look at k-space in MRIs so or the raw spatial frequency domain, which you have to do an inverse Fourier transform normally just to go into the spatial domain, look at the actual images to look at, but all the information is already in k-space. If you just do inverse Fourier transform, you don't lose anything. It's it's the same. It's just a different signal representation. So you can do things like classification or train methods, on classification, or segmentation, or other things, or just good, bad quality scan, just a very simple binary classification technique. You said like cats and dogs, but you could say good quality, bad quality, that you can already train in the, in the, in the raw signal domain. So show your network just a lot of different kinds of data, different scanners, different qualities, then it becomes more robust in the end. It's actually almost a bit shocking because I thought, well, all this, I really love this domain generalization, all this transfer learning and all these other things. But in the end, it's just the data you put in. <laughs> it's, and that's, that's our main problem. That's our main bottleneck that even if you work in a hospital as a researcher, you can't always access the data. You can't share it easily between different sites, different countries or different continents. And we're kind of blocking our own way there it's it's i mean there's this really strict data protection and we've got this gdpr rule in, in the eu which is all there for a good reason i don't question it. it is a really good legal framework but that legal framework doesn't forbid us to actually share data it just requires not only the consent of patients but it also says if it's for the common good it should be shared, actually. And that's that's really, I mean, how can we ever solve pandemics if people don't even want to say whether they're vaccinated or not? We don't even know we're working in the dark here, So we have to actually pull in this a little bit together and then aggregate more data and you know, have more machine power and other things, which brings us into environmental problems at some point, which people also don't talk about in deep learning, how much GPU time did you use? Standardization of data, people always want that, but... MR for example, MRI is not a quantitative imaging technique anyway. Even if you do quantitative MR imaging protocols like T1 mapping, it is not quantitative. It is patient specific and it might vary if you put the patient in a different scanner. So it's not an absolute measure you get out of it anyway. So we have to actually, if anything, we have to make our training algorithms agnostic to the quality. It should not care about it. So we should think more about disentanglement of quality versus the actual content that we want to find, the shape or the function or the disease status or whatever. I think this is probably the way forward that we actually should not care what quality the data is as long as we get the relevant information out. Plus, I mean, images might look bad, but they still might have enough content to actually allow the, the clinician to come to a good diagnosis. You just might sometimes just make them look prettier, but you might even lose information on the way if you're not careful, especially if you start mixing across different patient groups because you train on different patients. There's always the danger there's a huge abnormality. It might not get picked up anyway, or it might be smoothed out or very small abnormalities are even more concerned about. They might just get lost and might not get reconstructed at all.
0: Yeah, that that's really sort of summary in terms of the difficulties of the problems, because it's not really just the technical problem by doing better deep learning, right? So we have to really have a respect of the data and from the population that the data is coming. Now, one thing you, of course, mentioned right now is about the UK Biobank, which is, I guess, Almost all of our listeners know about it, but it's also something that other countries are trying to replicate. And I can imagine after the pandemic, there will be a significant push even at the political level to make that happen. Now, once that happens, what really is interesting is that with so much data, it's almost impossible to uh, manually do automatic quantification of the important information. So we, probably have to rely on algorithmic way of doing automatic quantification of such high throughput big data sets that probably also involves imaging, non-imaging, all different types of data. Here also we are seeing at the same time in Nikai community and other communities, we are developing algorithms that should scale to really tackle these big data challenges. So do you think we are probably sort of merging towards a common goal at some point in near future?
2: I wish. (laughs) I think it's a long way. And I mean, UK Biobank was a really nice example. Yes, Germany has a similar biobank. It's called the National Cohort, NACO. I think it's 30,000 participants. uh, And they do follow up MRI right now, which is really nice to see. Problem with both of these is in my case is they don't store the raw data. they only store the their reconstructed images, so you have to fake the raw data if you want. you have to go, you know, do an inverse you do a fourier transform, pretend it's you know um, the magnitude and then create some artificial phase, so it's not it's not the real thing, Cause it just takes too much disk space. I think um, I think disk space should be quite cheap these days, but there you go. What one has to be aware of, if you've got a UK biobank versus a German biobank, the demographics will already be quite different. Just the composition of the UK population is quite different. Um, Even if you compare Scotland to England, you will find quite some big differences already, right? Or if you compare Bavaria to Hamburg (laughs) in Germany. Or to, or to Darmstadt. it's it's really it's you you will get local snap, snapshots of the globe and what to do with that i i don't quite know it's we know that asia has again really different demographic um and the us will have a different demographic and and latin america so if you start putting all these things together it will be huge data mine of course a fantastic thing but i'm not even sure how to go about trying to find some unified model of that or how to find the differences or, you know, but you 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 will find things. You will find which type of person is more susceptible to diabetes or other things. I mean, or heart disease or other things. And we, we know a lot of that already from normal epidemiological studies. So I'm not sure how much external knowledge there will be in the MICA community, all these challenges are scaling up. You get more and more data. I mean, start startup is just getting very, very few data sets, if you might remember that still. And now you get a couple of hundreds, maybe a couple of thousands, not quite yet, but it's, it's getting there. But still, I see a lot of people working always on the same old, same old data. And I find that a bit sad. I mean... If somebody develops a new deformable registration method, they always try it on the OASIS database or the ADNI database. or And you just think, come on, there must be something you know, more, more local, more exciting. In the end, this is for benchmarking. The challenges are to benchmark your methods against the state of the art and to see if there has been a step change since the previous year. And I mean, the first challenge... I think both of you will be too young to remember that the first challenge actually was set up by my Mike Fitzpatrick and Jay West from Vanderbilt University and was the the RREP. And I have to remember what that said. I think the retrospective registration evaluation project where they did markers in heads and scanned the same patients with MRCT and PET. And then, because of the markers, which they kind of airbrushed out of the data before giving it to participants, uh, they they could get like a gold standard transformation, and so they knew what the perfect call to those markers, the perfect registration was. And then, all of a sudden, people stopped using their other similarity measures and feature-based registration. Everybody switched to mutual information. It was just that was that one step change which happened then, right? What we lack. And uh, registration still is something to go deeper to the pixel level because we just don't know. I mentioned that before. Reconstruction, there are now um, a couple of challenges. The fair challenge was there where they, they did fully sampled case-based acquisitions and then they removed case-based, not telling you what. And I actually, I don't quite know how they, how they did it in the end, but they ran a challenge as well. So who does the best reconstruction? But it was for the knee and the brain, which is quite limited. I mean, both are fairly static structures where it is really interesting if, it's, if you do it for the heart or for the liver. The problem is that you don't get a perfect, you know, perfect image in the first place. And this is where the real challenges are. The other challenge is, of course, yes, you can train on these nice big databases, but we are all very bad in making that step work. This is where this domain transfer came in and, and where people started trying to say at least they go from one scanning domain to the other because that's a big step. But the small step is you've got nice population data, mostly healthy. It has to work on the sick patient in the end and that that's really hard to do it's uh, it requires really a lot of input also from our, our radiologists i think and and we start seeing a new generation of radiologists now who actually start embracing ai a bit more i mean there's this fear of missing out <laughs> of course but there's also they they start seeing that because of so many data, as you said, there's so many data who can actually look at that. Our radiologists can't. They can't annotate that much anymore. We have to automate some of these processes for them. We need to have some quality assurance to that know that what we did is, is not completely off target. So it's always this visual assessment. is always the first and last line of defense and also an image registration, but it's also with the radiologists. There. They have to have
0: the final say. Wonderful. So, yeah, I, I guess there are many challenges and it's sort of a little bit, I don't know, disappointing to see that it still would take a little bit longer than what we always originally thought. <laughs> so that that kind of is, the I guess, the engineer's dilemma that the solution is always a bit far away than we, we originally thought. But it's also good to know that, okay, we have to still go a long way. So, Considering the timeline, we are towards the end of our uh, uh, podcast. Uh, And the last question here to you is a little bit of a thought experiment. So think of a perfect world without much interruption. You don't have to worry about, I don't know, writing grant proposals, getting the next set of Mikai papers out and with all these deadlines. And you can really focus on one major question. So what would you like to address there?
2: So for me now, because we are in this pandemic situation, I think the next big research question which I would like to look at um, and we'll need the it just really needs the input from many people is we need to start working with virologists, with epidemiologists, with radiologists, with people focusing on internal medicine, is to think about... For example, the effects of, of long COVID, because that's a healthcare challenge which will stay with us for a long time and will affect a lot of people we know, right? So for me, it's it's about interdisciplinarity. Long COVID is one example which will take this interdisciplinary effort. But things like if we think can work with these large databases, get phenotyping, genotyping, all these things, everything together. Can we study the interactions between different diseases? Long COVID will not be one disease, right? Long COVID will be many diseases, and we don't know how it will interact with other diseases we already have and which are already interlinked. So for me, the next big challenge is, and I'm not sure whether I retire before I get to do that, (laughs) getting all my reviews done and everything. But the next big challenges will be to really look at the interaction of many diseases, not just look at cardiac or fetal imaging or cancer imaging, but really look at the whole range. And that will require a lot of people pulling together, and will, be, will require a lot of people putting, you know, their data into our trust, right, their, or their trust into us using their data. It's it's a bit you have to think about like donating blood because you might need it at some point yourself. So I think people have to really embrace the fact that their data can be used for something good and should be used for something good. And only then can we solve these big healthcare
0: problems in the future. On that note, thank you so much. I really hope that sparks a lot more, I guess, openness about the data sharing in the community. That would really help everyone. Mm -hmm. And have a wonderful day, Yulia. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you very much, Adeban and Henry. It was really a pleasure being here. Thank you.